This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk, directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Michael J. Martinez discusses his new novel, The Venusian Gambit, then PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash shares some of our top picks for summer. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So we've got a new number one here in uh, fiction. It's Gathering Prey by our old friend John Sanford, uh, mm-hmm. who's uh, a guest on the radio show a couple years back. Um, at that time, we were discussing, I think, probably his 23rd book in the Lucas Davenport wow. series. We're up to 25. Um, and uh, our review says that it's an engrossing thriller. And uh, that Sanford handles the drawn-out action with his usual artful combination of suspense and humor. So uh, it's one for the fans, but uh-huh. uh, you know, even picking things up in in the middle here, uh, it might be actually fairly easy for a new reader to get caught up. Great. A little further down the list at number six, we have another perennial bestseller, Mary Higgins Clark with Death Wears a Beauty Mask and Other Stories. This is a collection of short work, uh, nine previously published tales, including her very first published story from 1958. Uh, Wow. It's a nice reminder of how long her career has been going. I had no idea she had been writing in 1958. Yeah, she's she's been around quite wow. quite a while, going on 60 years. Uh, and so this uh, this collection of stories really spans her entire career, and we say that it nicely illustrates her range and her superlative storytelling talent. Wow. That's pretty impressive. It really is. Yeah, let, let, let's hope we're all doing the, the I know. same thing and doing it just <laughs> as well as right. 60 years from now. Um, so uh, that's at number six. Moving down a little bit, uh, we have at number eight a book that we, the type that we don't usually see this high on the hardcover bestseller list. It's a tie in novel. Uh, in this case, it's a tie in for Star Wars. Uh, it's uh, called Lords of the Sith by Paul S. Kemp. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that the, the buzz around the forthcoming new Star Wars movies has helped to push this one up right. because uh, now that the fans' appetites have, have been whetted, mm-hmm. uh, they're looking for any kind of Star Wars fix that they can get. Right. And uh, what they can get conveniently is uh, this novel, which is set in the time, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, in, you know, around the uh, original movies. So it includes Darth Vader, Emperor Palpatine, all of those familiar oh, wow. names. Right. And uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see what the new movie does to the established fiction canon. I don't know whether there will make any attempts to reconcile it or they just sort of understand the books and the films go in different directions. But uh, that one came out in hardcover and it's at number eight on our list. A little further down, we have another thriller, Your Next Breath by Iris Johansson. This is the suspenseful fourth novel featuring CIA operative Catherine Ling. Uh, 
contemporary thriller and uh, there's plenty of international intrigue uh, mm. Ling grew up in Hong Kong right. now lives in the United States and uh, is at one point is followed by uh, uh, events involving some of her old friends from Hong Kong as well as uh, rescuing her son from uh, a Russian criminal so plenty to, to work with here on the international thriller front right. Um, and we say that uh, there are also some paranormal scenes in which Catherine communicates at a distance, telepathically, presumably, uh, with uh, a, a, one of her compatriots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this serves to not only keep the story moving, but also to heighten the sexual tension between her and uh, this other fellow. So wow. lots and lots going on there. Uh, and that's on our list at number 11. And finally, I just wanted to uh, make a note of the the top sort of literary uh, hardcover that we've got on the fiction list. At number 15 is Early Warning by Jane Smiley. It's the second volume of the Last Hundred Years trilogy, uh, which began with Some Luck, came out last year. Mm Mm-hmm. And it covers 1953 to 1986, uh, really focusing on the Cold War and its fallout for one family that uh, sort of starts in Iowa and uh, and then scatters all over the United States. Mm. Um, and we say that the material occasionally feels like the greatest hits of the post-World War II era, <laughs> Kennedy assassination, Jonestown, Vietnam, and uh, the post-war baby boom means cousins by the dozens. So it's a very big cast. Wow. Uh, so this isn't a series you can start in the middle, but uh, pick up some luck and then ride out the depression in World War II with right. the family there and then come back to this one, uh, which we say is haunted by atomics and adultery. Wow. So plenty of intense stuff there. And okay. uh, that's what we've got on the fiction side. Great. Well, on nonfiction, we have Hope, a memoir of survival in Cleveland. And this is by the two women who were kidnapped in, uh, by Ariel Castro, uh, Amanda Berry, and Gina de Jesus. Uh, and, and this is their story. Uh, they, they were discovered on May 6, uh, 2013. And um, this jumps right up at number one. And this week alone, it sold 30,000 copies. So uh, and this is written with Mary Jordan and Kevin Sullivan. So we expect this to be on the bestseller list for, for a while. Um, next up is, uh, we've got a few here on, uh, lifestyle changes. This is the hungry girl diet cookbook, uh, healthy recipes for mix and match meals and snacks coming from New York times bestseller, the hungry girl diet. This is the cookbook by, uh, Lisa Lillian. And, um, so this is at number seven, right on top there. Uh, and number eight, next one down, we have the brain maker, the power of gut microbes to heal and protect your brain for life by uh, david um uh, permuller um and he's the author of the best-selling grain brain which had been on the list for long time mm-hmm. and uh, he said uh, debilitating brain disorders are on the rise uh, he argues from children diagnosed with autism and adhd to adults developing dementia at younger ages than ever before and this is his plan to help heal and protect that all right uh, and then finally, we have Oliver Sacks on the move, a life. We gave it a star review. Uh, the celebrated bard of the brain's quirks reveals a flamboyant secret life and a multitude of intellectual passions in this introspective autobiography. We say the result is closely following his announcement that he has terminal cancer is a fitting retrospective of his lifelong project of making science a deeply humanistic pursuit. And this is at number 17. 
All right. Yeah, that uh, I I read our review when it first came out. I think we were one of the, the first places to review it. Yeah. And it just it sounds like an incredible book. Yeah, it does. It does. I like the jacket too. It's got a, a photo of him uh on the motorcycle, you know, nineteen looks like he's like wearing a leather coat or a denim tight fitting denim coat, head shaved and uh looks really it's a really great book jacket i think excellent i'm mark rotella and i'm rose fox and this is publishers weekly radio next up michael j martinez tells about his bumpy road to publication we'll be right back i'm kabir segel author of coint and you're listening to publishers weekly radio I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Michael J. Martinez on the line. His new book is The Venusian Gambit. Hi, Michael. I'm so glad you could join us. Hey. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Thanks for uh, having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So we spoke with you um, back in 2013, actually. You were one of our first radio guests when your first book was coming out. A lot has happened since then. So um, bring us up to date and uh, for the new listeners, um, just sort of introduce us to the, the background of the series and what's happening in this book. So this is the Daedalus series. It started with the Daedalus incident again back in 2013. Um, last year, the Enceladus crisis came out, and now, um, as of this week, the Venusian Gambit completes the trilogy. Uh, very excited about that. So this whole series is a historical fantasy slash space opera. I shuffle a bunch of genres around. Um, it is. It posits a Napoleonic era in which the sailing ships of that era sail between the planets of our solar system instead of the seas of Earth. And it is crossed with a future dimension based very much on our potential future with more hard science, science fiction, etc. Um, and these two different dimensions come together to uh, fight an ancient evil from way back. Um, and it's just basically four-color adventure, sort of crossing Master and Commander with Star Wars. Wow. Um, I, I can tell you've practiced that elevator pitch a little bit. I've had to. It's not an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about some of the central characters of the series. Well, so Lieutenant Thomas Weatherby uh, started the Daedalus incident. He was a first lieutenant on a frigate, uh, HMS Daedalus, um, back in 1777. And through the series, through the trilogy, he has um, grown over 30-some-odd years to be um, from a captain to an admiral as the Napoleonic Wars have gotten underway. Um, and he, I, I really liked his arc. I think, you know, he is very much the Horatio Hornblower, uh, Jack Aubrey sort of character in these books. Um, and he's, he's really kind of grown older and a little more jaded, but, um, by the same token, you know, he's much more sure of himself. Um, and he, he's found, a stable family and romance and everything else that's happened through the course of the book. So, you know, I've, his is the very much the traditional hero's journey, and I, I've had a lot of fun writing it. Um, and his his constant companion throughout this has been uh, Dr. Andrew Finch. So if uh, Weatherby is Jack Aubrey, then Finch would be Maturin, the, the doctor, or in this case, an alchemist, um, since alchemy is sort of the engine in this historical fantasy that allows sailing ships to fly through space. 
Um, and so he's been sort of that fun counterpoint that you've seen through a lot of that Napoleonic era naval fiction, and even going up through Star Trek, for example, with McCoy and Kirk. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the one dimension. And the other side, the, the other protagonist is Shayla Jane. She is a 22nd century astronaut. She's British, but of um, Hindu descent. And uh, I've really enjoyed putting her together with those characters from the uh, late 18th, early 19th century and enjoying sort of, sort of some of the, the frism that happens between them. It, it's been a lot of fun. And she's been responsible for figuring out on a very scientific basis what's been going on that's brought these two dimensions together. So you've got these two dimensions, and, and how, I mean, how do you integrate these elements of both science fiction and fantasy? I mean, do you plan it out, and what is the writing process like for that? So, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, and <laughs> I'll be the first to admit that. Um, I, I am a huge plotter and outliner, and in fact, I've taken to Excel hmm. to plot out exactly how this happens. So I have a spreadsheet for each of these books, and it's, it's about anywhere from 40 to 50 to 60 lines long, um, and it'll describe the date, so I know which dimension I'm in, the scene, uh, who's in it, what the main action is. It'll go into character arcs, um, subplotting, some setting elements, because I like to have just a tiny little bit of G-Wiz in each, um, and then close it out with whatever kicker I have for that scene to leave people either hanging or on an emotional note or something that gives the scene a certain closure. So in order to keep these dimensions straight, you know, you have to plot it out carefully. And, and when these two dimensions do come together, which they do because otherwise, what's the point? It's got to be that much fun. Um, so when they come together, you have to plot that out in such a way that it seems natural that at that point in time, that's where the nexus is. That's where they come together. So Excel, uh, it's not just for spreadsheets anymore. So, so tell us about these ships that fly through space. What's the science behind it? Well, absolutely no science. Uh, <laughs> that's the beautiful thing about fiction. I, you know, historical fantasy, I can make it up. Uh, so basically, um, you know, these are ships. These are sailing ships. I went and I walked the deck of HMS Rose um, in San Diego, uh, which was the replica frigate for Master and Commander the movie. Oh, wow. Um, I've seen deck plans. These are the actual ships. Mm-hmm. Um, I have learned more about rigging and guns and powder and and operations of those vessels than I I care to admit. Um, But the the key engine, the driver, for getting those very literal ships off the ground and into space is alchemy. Now, alchemy back in the actual time period was sort of finishing its transition towards actual science, towards chemistry. Um, but there were alchemists that still around and still operating in the late 1700s, um, sort of promoting a sort of mystical science, a science that, you know, would give you the results that science did. But if you did it at a certain time, a certain hour with a certain prayer, you'd get a better result, allegedly. Right. Um, so having that historical antecedent there was great because then I could say, well, all right, what if alchemy really worked? And so you talk about the different the classical elements. You can map them out. 
using um, various hermetic stuff to the solar system at large, and you can create a system of workable mystic science that gets these boats off the ground. And that's what I did. I, I love the phrase workable mystic science. I'm I'm trying to imagine your your readers attempting to develop some sort of uh, recipe book based on the descriptions that you have in here. Going, well, maybe if I did this, I could fly through space. You know, I don't try that at home. <laughs> I don't try that at home at all. That would be bad. But it, no, it, it's you know I, I have a very good friend who is something of an occultist and pointed me towards a lot of different literature that I used. You know, uh, so the Tree of Life figures prominently in the first book. Um, and sort of Egyptian stuff figures prominently in the second and third. So I, I've been able to integrate a lot of that stuff and just basically with the whole premise of, hey, what if it worked? And so, what if there were aliens involved? <laughs> <laughs> um, you, haven't, you haven't mentioned the aliens before, so tell, tell us a little bit about that. that I, is that the ancient evil you were... You were mentioning? Yes. So, you know, it, what, why put sailing ships in space if there are no aliens? It just seems <laughs> less fun. It's a great question. Um, come on, man. Uh, so basically, you know, when it came to mapping out my solar system for this Napoleonic era, I actually leaned a little bit more on pulp than, than sort of anything else. So when you t- think about Venus, you think about a verdant green jungle. Mm-hmm. And that sort of led to a sort of primitive lizard alien culture. Um, uh, on Mars, you certainly have the red deserts, the canals, um, and that sort of led me down the path towards a former civilization of very warlike creatures that got wiped out by the aliens who now live on Saturn, on Saturn's rings, in fact. Mm. Um, and those are the ones that are very, are more advanced than the uh, humanity of that time period. So, you know, it just, it just was a lot of different things that came together to be like, you know, why not? Again, if, it, if it's been done before, um, why not make it a little more interesting and better here? I, 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 don't, I don't pretend to have reinvented the wheel by any stretch. I just think that nobody sort of slapped all these elements together in this one space before. So the trilogy is published by Nightshade Books. Um, that's gone through some changes over the last few years while you were in the publishing process. We talked about that a little bit a couple of years ago. Bring us up to date. Um, what did that whole thing look like from your perspective as an author? Well, with the trilogy now out and all three books on shelves and, and life being good, I can look back on it with some uh, much more experienced eyes. At the time, it was panic-inducing. Mm. Um, so Nightshade Books, uh, a strong independent publisher, really well regarded, um, in 2013 just wasn't viable anymore as a going concern. The finances weren't working. Uh, so it put itself up for sale uh, to Skyhorse Publishing. Skyhorse here in New York, they do a lot of different things in terms of um, uh, nonfiction. They're starting to branch out into various forms of fiction, etc. Um, they are they are big. They are growing. Um, so basically, the sale of of Nightshade's assets, its name, its its contracts, to Skyhorse happened pretty much just as my debut was supposed to happen. So again, panic inducing. Um, The debut was delayed for a few months while all of that 
sort of came together. It, it was tough. Um, there was a lot of unknowns and a lot of uncertainty, and and I just, for me, just kind of kept my head down and like, look, whatever you guys need. I wrote a book. Somebody finally agreed to publish it. I just want to see it on a shelf. Let's just <laughs> whatever you need to get there. I will do whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. You know, the the deal finally came together. Um, uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America was was really instrumental in, you know, I think, bringing authors and Skyhorse and Nightshade together on on on, on an agreement. Um, and now, you know, the second the second and third books of this trilogy were published by the new team at uh, Nightshade slash Skyhorse. Um, and I can't say enough good things about them. I, I think you know my editor Corey Allen. He has been really smart. He's he's pushed me in some directions that are really cool. He's got a good eye. Um, I'm I'm excited. I, I I think they they have a good future. Um, you know, there's still. I mean, it's only been two years. There's still going to be some kinks to work out, some things they want to explore and do, and and how best to proceed forward. But um, having that sort of crisis you know, two years in the past now, I, I think you can look forward to, to some good things coming out of, out of Nightshade. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Michael J. Martinez, author of The Venusian Gambit. Um, So how have those publishing experiences influenced your thoughts on uh, writing and publishing in the future? You know, um, I I should preface this. Uh, This is still very much a part-time thing for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I can do uh, I can do a book a year. Uh, I used to work for the Associated Press, so I can write fast. Um, I have a full time job, and um, I'm in marketing communications uh, for a mutual fund company, and they pay me far more than they should. I actually really shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> if they're if they're listening, guys, you don't pay me near enough. Um, so you know, it, it, for for me to transition to be a full time novelist is very difficult. So you know, my answer to that is going to be colored by that experience. Um, right now, I'm just I'm thrilled that the stuff is out there. I'm thrilled that it's gotten the kind of reception that it has. Um, Nightshade's still very much a small press. Um, you know, nobody's in danger of hitting the New York Times bestseller list anytime soon, and that's <laughs> fine. I, I'm. I'm doing it because I like to do it, and at this point, I just want to see what happens next. Um, you know, I think I will probably stay in a traditional publishing mode um, with with Nightshade or with somebody else, depending, you know, how things shake out down the road. Um, because again, as as sort of a part timer, I feel like I'm entering a business relationship with my publisher, where I write the books, and they handle the editing and the cover and the copy editing. And the cover design, and the ebook, and the distribution, and the printing, and everything else, and that's a lot. Yeah, you know, you think about self-publishing. I think I think the biggest the biggest sort of thing that people trip on is that you aren't just writing books and putting them out there. You are wearing like twelve different hats. Yeah, right. Designer, marketing, sales. 
right. everything. And yeah. I mean, you know, I think as a, as a as a author, no matter even you know even with a traditional publisher, you're going to have to do some marketing. That that that's just evident. Um, you know, thankfully it's kind of my day job, so that's fine. Uh, but I, I I think you know I couldn't bring I couldn't do all that other stuff on my own um, and still you know have a life. So um, I think for me, traditional down the road, um, this has been a great experience with with writing this trilogy. I do like mashing different genres together. Um, I'm I'm sort of noodling on a couple of different things, and um, we'll just see what happens next. I mean, it's just a fun ride. Yeah. So we were going to ask, what now that this trilogy is done, will you continue mashing genres? <laughs> I think so. You know, I think I think. It's a case of one plus one equaling more than two, um, because not only do you get the two different elements within a story, but the interplay of those elements becomes just far richer than anything you could do on their own. I mean, mm-hmm. the, fir- the first time that Weatherby and Jane met on Mars in 2132 slash their, their dimensions have collided, and here you have a woman astronaut in a spacesuit pointing a non-lethal microwave emitter at a British naval officer holding a flintlock on her, and you're just like, how does this even happen? And both sides are struggling with the fact that there's the old-timey Navy guy there, and the old-timey Navy guy is looking at the woman... A woman, my God, a woman in a spacesuit. What is that white thing that she's wearing, and why is she pointing that at me? And just the, the just the culture clashes were just so much fun to play with. So, and that's just one scene. So, yeah, I mean, the more the more I can do of this, the better. I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to tell really good stories when you do sort of throw some genres together and see what happens. So at what point in your writing career did you, I mean, obviously you had read a lot of science fiction, a lot of fantasy. At what point did you have that Reese's moment when it was like, hey, who put that peanut butter in my chocolate? When, and combining well, this, the fantasy this was, and the... This was probably, wow, um, 10 years ago. Okay. Um, no, 12 years ago. Um, so I, I, I started as a journalist. I didn't really, I wasn't planning on being a fiction writer. Um, but I, I did think at one point that, wow, this would be a great idea to do sort of a master and commander in space. Um, and originally I thought it would be a really cool role-playing game. I actually didn't think I had it in me to be a fiction writer. Um, so I, I started taking it down that road for a little bit and then I had a kid and then all else stopped for a number of years. And then she grew older enough so that she didn't need constant care and feeding and I could return to this sort of thing. And and then it became a novel and then it became something effective. Let's try. I'm older, allegedly wiser. Let's see if I can actually write a novel. Um, so, you know, that's when sort of when I started plotting it out, that's when the other dimension came in. And that's when the idea of blending these genres uh, really came to the fore as something that really, I think, held a lot of great storytelling potential. So you, you mentioned you've got a full-time job, this uh, marketing work, and uh, you've got a family, and you're writing a book a year, which you just sort of casually toss out there, like, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you do it? How do you balance it all? 
it's not that casual. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's a question of I, I think being disciplined. Um, you know, I. I and it does go back to the outline I discussed earlier. Those those forty to sixty lines are are scenes. Those scenes are maybe anywhere from fifteen hundred to five thousand words. Um, I used to be a reporter for the Associated Press, and fifteen thousand or fifteen hundred to five thousand words was a slow day. Um, so I write fast, and I go back and revise several times. And it's just a question of the discipline to sit down, write. Go forward as best you can. I mean, if you can write 2,000 words a day, five days a week, 10,000 words, 10 to 12 weeks, you have the first draft of a novel. Um, and then mm-hmm. you go back and you revise. So it's not impossible. Um, but it definitely, there are definitely days where you have to sit down in that chair and forge ahead on the story, even if you've had a long day and you just don't want to. But... I think no matter what you do for a living, that's you know you have days like that. So, um, when you're bringing this this reporter's instinct or training to to the work, do you feel like are you envisioning the scene and then essentially reporting on on what you imagine in your head? How how do those skills interact with fiction writing? Yeah, I, I think there's a large part of that. I think you know, if anything, I have to make a mental note to be a bit more writerly about it um my 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 first drafts and my first novel were very dry um not quite to the level of of newspaper reporting but i didn't really have the confidence or even the skill set at that point to really start to work on the the language and the craft and it was only when i started writing that sort of late 1700s voice that i kind of struck on sort of some neat wordsmithing that I could do within that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very much, I have the scene, I, I'm writing to the assignment almost. The assignment is in Excel. This is the scene. This is what it has to do. Write to that. Now, obviously, you can't be a slave to it. If you get an idea smack in the middle of something and it requires a massive left turn, take the turn and pick up the pieces later on revision. Just do it. But... Um, yeah, it, it, you know, and and the other thing I think that journalism really helped me with was dialogue, hmm. because we are quoting constantly. We are listening to how people speak because we want to get it as as accurately as possible. So I, I think that's really helped me develop an ear for dialogue and how people speak, and and hopefully that's reflected in the piece. It was interesting. You had you had. You know, talked about your uh, work at the uh, AP, where two thousand or so words a day was a slow day. Uh, but I guess one of the differences in fiction writing, you you have an ability to work to to write and rewrite. How was that as an exercise for you? I mean, how how did you approach that? Was that I mean, because I imagine working on deadline, you don't you know, for the AP for for a wire service, you don't have that luxury. Yeah, no, you you really don't. And the other thing is, I mean, when you have a 500-word story that you have to get out the door in a half hour, you know, it's, you revise as you go or you don't revise at all. I mean, revision is simple as a simple scan. So I, I one of the things that I really had to learn was how to revise, right? how to go back and and peel through and, and know where to add and know where to take away to examine it, not just as, you know, again, as I write, I'm writing pieces on the revision process, and I, I will go through two or three times, you know, I'm looking at it much more holistically at that point 
and kind of taking off my writer hat and putting on my reader hat. Um, I, I try to revise as if I'm a reader reading this novel and being like, okay, wow, that's a great turn of phrase or wow, that's really dry. It's, this needs to be kicked up. Um, it's a bit of an ephemeral thing. You can't, I can't really nail it down in a description, but it's the reader hat. As, as a reader of this draft, am I satisfied? No. How do I get satisfied? Hmm. And and what's it like working with your editor at Nightshade? Is it um, similar to your experiences being edited on on the Wire service, or when you were also working for ABC News for a while? So, um, you know, how how does that compare? Uh, you know, he's a lot nicer. He doesn't throw furniture. <laughs> That's great. Um, oh, so all the stories are true. <laughs> Nobody at AP or ABC threw furniture. That was somebody else who we won't mention. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so basically, you know, Corey, Corey's great. Um, you know, it's that dreaded, I ne- you know, we heard a lot about the editorial letter. Like, oh, I've got my editorial letter. Dun, dun, dun. But... I've been edited all my life by people who have no time or inclination to be nice about it uh, because it's got to get done. So in, you know, publishing, I'm like, all right, you know what? That's cool. Um, My view towards editing is like, tell me how to make the story better. You have a job and it's to make this story better. And, and my job is to listen and, and learn from you really, because three novels in, I still feel that I can learn every time from an editor. Um, you know, the only thing that I, I really dislike about editors and, and this isn't Corey by any stretches is the ones who feel like they have to like, you know, throw down to make a point. We're like, what were you thinking? This is crap. You know, that sort of thing. I'm like, dude, I've been at this for 22 years. Don't <laughs> just, just <laughs> let's be professionals here. But I haven't had that experience in, in fiction and in, in, in this, in, you know, writing novels. And I hope I never do. So um, we we were doing our little biographical background research on you, and uh, Mark dug up the fact that you homebrew. Uh, have you have you ever had any explosions that maybe inspired some of the explosions in your books? <laughs> you know, I never lost one. Um, <laughs> I never lost a, a bottle to explosion. Although I did try an experimental brew um, just last month, and I messed it up somehow, and it was just bitter and ugly and uh, a waste of good hops and and barley but uh like writing you know you got to experiment to see what works and you you can't go back and revise your homebrew with the help of a no you you can't you have to dump it down the drain and hope for better results next time and ask the good folks on the uh homebrew reddit what you did wrong because they're very smart (laughs) Um, so speaking of which, what, what's your writing community like? Have, have there been other writers who've mentored you, inspired you? Um, you know, I am, I am very fortunate that I, I have met a lot of great people and writers. Um, you know, uh, I think Chuck Wendig gives some of the best writing advice out there. If you're not reading his blog, you're missing out on great writing advice. He is just, I mean, he's insane. And if you have a thing against profanity, you shouldn't actually listen or read his stuff because he he's delightfully profane. Uh, but his advice is fantastic. Um, and I look at him. I look at Kevin Hearn. Um, you know, those guys have been great. Um, I'm going to be doing some signings and stuff in, in Phoenix with them. And it, it's they're fantastic. The folks from my agency, like uh, Mike Underwood and Jason Huff, you know, they've been fantastic. Um, and it just, 
you know, I've, I've sort of built that community piece by piece. I haven't been able to get out to do uh, as many conventions as a lot of my peers do because, again, you know, day job. And I like to actually go places on vacation. Um, but, um, you know, I have been slowly building that out and, and just really have met a lot of cool authors. And I'm just very happy to be among them. Yeah, when you're a, when you're a working writer, conventions are not vacations. It's, it's no, just, they're it's not more work. exactly. And, and my wife is a travel writer. That's mm. sort of her sort of part time thing. So you know, we tend to go places that are super cool, and I don't want to give those up to you know hang out at the convention center. Right, right. But then she's the one who's working on vacation. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, she she's <laughs> she's working as vacation, and really, it's a it's a sweet thing. I think it's much you know. It's an even better marriage of work and play than the whole fiction thing. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much for um, keeping us up to date on what's been going on with you. And uh, you know, maybe we'll have you back in 2017 to talk about uh, what's coming up next. I would really enjoy that. Thank you so much for having me on, you guys. We've been talking with Michael J. Martinez. You can find his book, The Venusian Gambit, in stores right now. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Deputy Reviews Director Gabe Habesh talks about PW's summer reads. Stay tuned. I am Mario Marazziti, author of 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Deputy Reviews editor Gabe Habash is here to tell us all about PW's top picks for the summer. Hello, Gabe. Thank you for coming on again. We love having you. Hi, guys. Hi. It's always nice to have you here uh, with your with your lovely deadpan. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, every year, PW puts out a list of picks for summer. Um, I know some of these are, are beach reads, and some of them are more lengthy books that are suitable for taking on long airplane flights. We're hoping everyone gets to get out of town this summer. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the books that we threw up on that list? Yeah, sure. So the first one is a bit of a uh, outlier in that uh, we don't have a review yet. And it's sort of the biggest book of not only the summer, but maybe of the year, definitely of the year and maybe of the decade. And it's the new Harper Lee book. Ghost Out of Watchmen, which is out in July, mm -hmm. July 14th. Right. I don't believe they are doing galleys of that, so I'm not sure how much early re review coverage that's going to have. Uh, but as, as you say, it's a big book without yeah, needing I mean, any reviews at all. I don't think it needs any reviews. Uh, so yeah, and I'm sure everybody knows enough about the background. It's her second novel, After To Kill a Mockingbird, which is about 55 years old, almost to the day of when... Ghost Out of Watchmen comes out, and um, this is a. This was actually written by Harper Lee before To Kill a Mockingbird, um, and they, you know, there was all this. There was a story that they found it, and then there was the controversy of did they actually find it, and. Um, but it takes place. It's still the same characters. It's Atticus and Scout, and um, yeah, it's, takes about, it takes takes place about twenty twenty years after. Mm -hmm. The events of To Kill a Mockingbird, so it's sequel in chronology, but it was written before To Kill a Mockingbird, and um, I believe they announced this in February, maybe it was a while ago, and uh, as soon as they put up pre-orders 
options on Amazon. Uh, I think it went to number one, and I checked it uh, a couple minutes ago, and it's still in the top 20. And I'm, wow. I can't imagine it's dropped out of the top 20s right. for however many months that's been now. So uh, I would be surprised if anything outsells it, and it's certainly the book event of the year. Yeah, a lot of people are going to be talking about it, regardless of whether people think it's amazing, a triumph, a disappointment. Uh, it's going to generate a whole lot of conversation. Yeah, it's going to be one of those books there that you there, there's not going to be any sort of actual accurate assessment of the book for some time because there's just going to be a lot of noise that comes out when it comes out. Everybody's going to say it shouldn't have been published, and then mm-hmm. there's going to be people that say it's better than To Kill a Mockingbird, I'm sure, and you know they're going to already be looking for a third book. I'm sure that she won't, you know, if they have anything else up in her attic uh, and so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. All right. So what do we have that we have actually had a chance to review and assess? So then I wanted to move to um, nonfiction and uh, this is one of the bigger memoirs of the year. uh, And it's actually out next week, May 12th. It's hold still by Sally Mann. (laughs) And it's a memoir of her, um, family. She uh, is perhaps most uh, famous for um, some photographs that she took of her family in the early 90s uh, under the name of Immediate Family that created a lot of controversy. Um, they were pre- predominantly pictures of her three young children in the nude. And um, the memoir is sort of about how her uh, family and her life was changed in the in the ensuing um, chaos mm. and she's in she lived in Virginia lives in Virginia and um, the book goes into all these different facets of um, how her life changed including there was a there's a stalker involved and there's wow this is not to like you know make her the things that were terrifying to her at the time more likable to us for summer reads now but you know, the book reads like a crime thriller in places, and mm. our review made note of that. We start it. Um, and so there's this sort of um, tense psychological aspect to the book, um, in addition to it being a just wonderfully written uh, family memoir. Yeah, great. Um, and then the next book is um, another big name, and it seems like uh, summer is the perfect time for him. It's Stephen King's new book. Mm hmm. And it's called Finders Keepers. It's out June 2nd. And it is the... um, This is actually a crime book. um, And it's the same detective that was in last year's Mr. Mercedes. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Well, this is a crime thriller. But this one uh, has sort of a... uh, Getting into it actually like to tie in with um, Harper Lee in terms of reclusive authors it has a jd salinger stand-in character so the premise of this one is that um there is a man named morris bellamy in the 70s who kills his literary idol whose name is john rothstein and he's clearly a jd salinger stand-in and he takes a bunch of rothstein's notebooks and um what happens is bellamy goes to prison for 35 years for another crime um, and when he comes out being the nut he is, he goes back to, uh, the place where he stashed the notebooks mm. and he wants to collect them and he finds out that somebody else has taken them. And so it turns into this sort of like crazy person tracking down the guy who took his notebooks. And, um, this Bellamy guy is, uh, one of the creepier King 
characters, uh, both for his evil side and by the fact that he is so intelligent and he's just a book nerd. Um, and he obviously likes books enough to be twisted enough to kill the writer that he most admires. And um, it's just a great summer read. And uh, anybody who liked Mr. Mercedes, I'm sure will be looking for the next Bill Hodges book. And I'm sure there's going to be a third one. Seems very likely. Yeah. Um, and then the last one I wanted to talk about is actually my personal favorite, and it is called Imperium. It's a novel. It's by a German writer named Christian Kracht, mm-hmm. K-R-A-C-H-T. Um, he's been translated into 25 languages or so, um, and it's this sort of... I, I really liked it because it's this... Um, I guess I should just try to summarize it. It's not really uh, easily categorize but it's about a man named august engelhart who is a real person he actually was alive he's a real person he's dead now but um he is a german thumb-sucking uh <laughs> vegetarian nudist and he basically the premise of the book is he's fed up with uh society and civilization in germany he's living in germany in the early I can't remember if it's the late 1800s or early 1900s. It's shortly before World War One breaks out. And he um, tries to go found a, establish a uh, utopia in Papua New Guinea. And um, it's coconut based. Um, so everybody in his, his utopia is just going to subsist entirely on coconuts. Um, <laughs> wow. And it's... It's so strange and funny and um, also like weirdly poignant because he's such a um, idealistic, uh, he's he's pretty gullible. A lot of people take advantage of him and steal his money because he's trying to buy attractive land on this island. And it also works as sort of like a uh, Conradian adventure, like it has like Shades right. of Heart of Darkness and... Um, it's just he, he Christian Crocht is just like is uh, knows he he knows what type of mode to work in. Like he can shift from being um, outrageous to more uh, serious, and uh, it just has a very interesting voice, and it encompasses a lot of like history pretty seamlessly. There's one part where he uh, this guy August will run across some historical figures, including the guy who created the Vegemite spread. So there's just some, <laughs> it's just, there's not really a book like it that I could, that I can think that I can think of. And it's short and it's just really fun to read. And that's out in July. It's called Imperium. And what can you tell us about the author? Um, this is his first book translated, uh, into English from, from German, from German. Yeah. And he, uh, I think is in his forties. He's been around for quite some time. They've made, they haven't made the movie, but I know they've optioned the film rights to the to the book, and I know it's also a stage play in Germany. Um, so he's he, and I think he won he won. Um, I'm going to blank on the name of the. Not that I'm uh, up to speed on my German literary awards, but uh, I know he's won a major award for this book. Um, so yeah, he's this is a this is a good a good way to break into the American market. Hopefully, we'll see. 
But and you're helping him right now on PW Radio. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's, it sounds like a, a tremendously fun kind of wacky adventure. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and that's why I was so taken by it, just because from the first page and uh, you're you're not really ready for something like this. I, I feel like people tend to hear literary fiction and think like very ponderous and serious and uh, sort of full of, full of psychological drama. And this, this sounds like a nice counterpoint to that side of litfic yeah i mean it's 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 never less than fascinating to watch him uh try to establish this colony and at the same time it's also sort of um sad because he is undernourished because he's only eating coconuts and um it's just it's a really memorable book Fascinating. Mark, did you have any of your uh, picks that you wanted to highlight? Because we all did selections in our various sections. Well, you know, uh, I did select the Oliver Sacks book, um, the memoir, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, as we is on on our bestseller list uh, this week. And I I did have a um, a uh, uh, staff pick. We also did the staff pick. And that one was William Finnegan, Barbarian Days, about surfing as a New Yorker writer. And he talks about growing up in Hawaii and California as a surfer. And that kind of led him on um, a whole new path of uh, traveling across the world to surf. And um, um, so that was that was one of my staff. That was my uh, staff pick. What about you? Um, well, for my for my staff pick, I went with Uprooted by Naomi Novik, who's actually going to be our guest in a couple of weeks. Right. Um, and uh, this is actually it's a wonderful departure. She does uh, alternate history. She has been doing this alternate history series um, that I think is is finally wrapping up. Um, that's you know, what if the there were dragons providing aerial support during the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, she actually she really builds. Mm-hmm the existence of dragons into every facet of global culture and, and it completely transforms geopolitics. And, uh, and so this is a departure from that. It's a a fairy tale of sorts, but completely original, not, not based on any existing story that I'm aware of. Uh, It's, it's got this lovely sort of Polish sensibility. There's small towns and a forest and a big city somewhere off, but we mostly don't worry about that. Uh, and the premise is that there is a magician called Dragon who every 10 years shows up at these villages and takes a 17-year-old girl to work for him. Uh, and then 10 years later, she's free to go home, but she never does. And so the sort of part of the mystery is why these girls who leave the villages where they've grown up never come back after working for him. And everybody thinks, you know, does he abuse these girls? Why is it always a girl? And mm-hmm. um, and it when he comes and uh, selects a, a young woman named Agnieszka because she has magical abilities. Uh, it turns out that she has a completely different kind of magic than his. And so you end up with this really interesting exploration of concepts of, of gender and myth. You know, her magic is very tied to the magic of other women, going all the way back to Baba Yaga. And um, his magic is very much the sort of, like, she, she says it's, it's almost orderly clockwork Mm. magic and hers is much more organic but they like there's no sense that one is better than the other it's just that they have to work very hard to understand each other but when they work together they can sort of be more than the sum of their parts and then later on she meets someone who does blade magic and who who forges these magical weapons and everybody has a different way of making magic work um 
and it's all woven through this uh, very intense, grim sense of the forest, the the evil magical forest encroaching, and and people saying, "Well, we just need to beat it back. It's scary," and right. and other people saying, "But why?" Why is it doing it? Why Why does the forest want to take our land, consume our people? Um, it clearly wants something. What does it want? So uh, it's touching on a lot of things that have shown up in fantasy fiction. I and mean, when you think about the encroaching forest and beating it back, you could go all the way back to the Ents in uh, Tolkien's Middle Earth. Mm. Um, but uh, really taking a, a fresh look at basically all of the stuff that we take for granted in fantasy and it's a really good story uh, so i was i was just enthralled uh, i sat down i was like i'll just read a few pages of this over dinner and two hours later i was like i have to put the book down <laughs> uh, but it was uh it was amazing so. this is great we're gonna be able to talk to her yeah i'm great. really really looking forward to Excellent. talking with her about that and gabe what was your uh, pick it was a non-fiction uh, i picked the argonauts by maggie nelson right um, which she's one of my favorite writers. And um, that book, I believe, is out this week. I think it's already right. out. Yeah. Um, and that is a memoir about her relationship with the artist Harry Dodge and also her um, pregnancy and um, having a young son. And it's Great. she's just an amazing writer. Hmm. So. Great. Fascinating. I, I yeah. didn't know that the both of you were, were going with memoirs. I guess, it, you know, I really should read more memoir. I never get a chance to, but whenever I see a refusal, I'm like, that sounds so interesting. <laughs> right. These people living great lives. Um, and obviously all of our summer reads and staff picks are on our website, publishersweekly.com. Um, they should be fairly prominently displayed uh, and uh, in lots of stuff there that's worth checking out for readers of every kind. So Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. Always nice to have you here. Thanks, guys always a pleasure and now a final word from our sponsors hi i'm sarah fort author of started kitchen bowl and spoon and you're listening to publishers weekly radio and that's it for today's show i'm mark rotella and i'm rose fox and you've been listening to publishers weekly radio join us next week for an interview with dr eugenia chang author of how to bake pie an edible exploration of the mathematics of mathematics We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 